Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And to begin with, I, I want to send my love and thanks to all of our fellow saloners, and particularly those who posted supporting comments on uh, several of the websites that have been following our little dramas here in the salon. And uh, in particular, I'd like to thank those who uh, either paid for a copy of my uh, Pay What You Can uh, audiobook uh, edition of my novel, The Genesis Generation, and uh, to those who made direct donations to the salon. Uh, Altogether, uh, you've helped us to get out of the woods, so to speak, and our hosting fees are now taken care of for uh, the next two months and uh, actually even into October. So a lot of pressure has been removed from my life, and uh, for that I will remain eternally grateful. But even more than your financial donations, uh, well, your messages of support have uh, lifted my spirits immeasurably. And uh, this weekend, I'll be contacting each of you directly uh, to again give you my thanks. And uh, for the recording that I'm about to play for you right now, I want to thank both Tom Riddell, who traveled to Esalen with us to make the recording, and to Mystical Sun, the musician and sound engineer who spent a lot of time uh, leveling up all of the various voices and uh, eliminating as much uh, extraneous chatter as possible, uh, you know, stuff that comes with recording in a room full of interesting people. Now, uh, I've only just begun going through these recordings myself, and so I'm not sure yet how many podcasts will come out of our Esalen workshop. Uh, for sure, there will be a compilation of several segments by Bruce Damer, and uh, today I'm going to play the recording of the session that took place immediately after uh, Bruce's now controversial uh, deep dive, although I still don't really understand what was so controversial about it. Anyway, uh, what follows is the interaction and commentary between myself, Bruce, and uh, several of the other participants in this workshop. As you'll hear, uh, this, uh, to me at least, is an excellent example of what I call psychedelic thinking. And uh, thinking outside of the box like this is uh, what I personally focused on during our weekend together at Esalen. And uh, that's why I've also titled this episode, Occupy Yourself. However, uh, I suspect that the title alone will maybe keep a few of our fellow saloners away from listening to it, since uh, from the title one might think that it's uh, simply about the Occupy movement. And uh, I guess in a sense it, it probably is, because uh, again, uh, to me at least, the movement is about uh, a movement in consciousness. And uh, for many of us, uh, consciousness, uh, not drugs, was actually the focus of Terence McKenna's work. As you already know, the uh, apparently most controversial part of Bruce's deep dive into the mind of McKenna uh, that immediately preceded the conversation we're about to hear was the fact that uh, after some time in 1988 or 1989 that Terence no longer partook of magic mushrooms. And as we continue to listen to more talks by Terence in the months ahead, I think that we'll see quite clearly that uh, he never implied otherwise. On numerous occasions that I can recall, uh, many of which have already appeared in uh, recordings uh, posted all over the net, Terence very clearly stated that he used psychedelics only rarely. And uh, I know of at least one recording in which he specifically talks about using psilocybin. 
However, there is a difference between using mushrooms and using synthetic psilocybin, which is the uh, main, but perhaps not only, uh, active ingredient in magic mushrooms. So uh, let's be clear about this, at least, that uh, while Terrence maybe didn't use mushrooms again, he did use psilocybin on, on several occasions that I'm aware of. Now, uh, you're going to hear a lot more from me uh, in just a minute, but if you'll listen closely, I'm sure that you'll discover that the deep value coming out of this workshop was what the other participants had to say. For our part, uh, Bruce and I tried to uh, seed the conversation and respond to comments, but the bulk of the important stuff actually came from the rest of our little group, uh, some of whom you are about to hear in just a moment. And... While I won't be identifying uh, any of the speakers by name, uh, as I listen to them uh, again with you right now, I can uh, very clearly see their faces, and my heart just glows with love for them. Uh, as we will hear in just a moment, these wonderful souls are most likely a very good representation of uh, what all of our fellow saloners are like. Uh, you know, they're young, old, women, men, and from all walks of life and experience. So uh, thank you all for being a part of a very special gathering. And as you and I are going to hear right now, they also had some very important things to say. What I'd like to maybe kick it off a little discussion here is that, uh, you know, I've had this information for some time, and, and it, uh, it really did kind of traumatize me at first because, uh, like we were just talking, that, you know, I, I used to feel like myself was a psychedelic failure because... Uh, I wasn't going out doing uh, heroic doses of mushrooms every other night and things like that. Uh, but the more I've thought about it, the, the more I realize that uh, I've kind of tuned out on anything Terrence whenever he's talking about the medicine itself, and it's consciousness that seems to me was his, his gig. And we're at a really interesting uh, point, or you could call it other words too, but in, in world history that, uh, you know, the world is, is coming unglued. And, and some of those uh, comments of Terrence about the, the economic collapse and all, well, he was a little early, but, you know, we are facing on a global basis things like this. And I've always felt that it was the psychedelic community uh, that is going to be like the, the, the keel on a ship to keep the ship calm. And so that, you know, if you've had uh, even just one or two psychedelic experiences, you know how to expect the unexpected and, and you don't freak out about things. And I think part of the role of our community, and I'll be talking about that a little more this afternoon, but perhaps uh, we should be thinking of ourselves as somebody to kind of put oil on the waters and helping our friends get through things. Because we're going to go through a big change. Uh, like it or not, the world is changing. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's not like uh, uh, it's unexpected. These things have been bubbling under the surface for a long time. Uh, the change in human consciousness uh, has become very obvious, obvious with the, uh, what some people are calling the Occupy movement, but it started long before that, and it's been bubbling up uh, really since uh, January of 94 in the Chiapas when the, uh, uh, the, jung the declaration of the Lacandon jungle was issued when uh, NAFTA went in. And that was really uh, the beginning of a worldwide shift in consciousness. And so I've always felt that uh, this whole 2012 meme that unfortunately Terrence also helped spread the thing, uh, it, that, you know, it got carried away. It's great for Hollywood. But I've always felt that, that uh, if there are still people around talking about these things five, six hundred years from now, that the generation 
on either side of this particular year we're in, the, that, that two-generational swing is when they'll, they'll see there was a definite change in human consciousness and cl moving our consciousness away from the power elite who actually uh, took over consciousness uh, a long time ago. And uh, if we have time, I'll get back into talking about that some. But right now, what I'd like to do, because uh, uh, some of you uh, probably knew this about Terence before, and uh, some of you may uh, uh, be in shock to know that he wasn't uh, the big head, psychedelic head that we thought he was, but how does this change your perception of the value of his words, his message, him coming here? Has it, uh, do you think it'll have an impact on you? How do you take this message back when... Dennis's book is going to be coming out, and we're the, the vanguard that I think will help uh, spread our, our friends, uh, uh, the word to our friends that uh, there's a lot deeper person there than just a guy that did drugs all the time. And, and I think we can start right there. Tom, do, you, do you want the microphone? Well, for me, it really humanizes Terrence, and it gives so much more realistic value to what he has to say. I mean, I've always thought that those heroic doses are just too much overload for the human system. And we're already experiencing so much overload on so many different levels that what we need to do, I think, is to cultivate a sense of balance and wisdom and sanity. And I agree with you that con uh, consciousness was really Terence's main me message. And the way that he could diagnose and observe social dynamics, uh, coming trends, he was an incredibly insightful, observant human being. Very unique, and I, like all of us here, just really, really love him, and love him for who he was, as well as what he said and did. And because I knew him personally, I know that he was a very authentic, genuine, beautiful, sterling man. He was trustworthy. He was amazingly candid and honest. And I have great respect for him. So I commend Dennis for having presented this side of things because it humanizes him in a way that I think ultimately makes his message much more valuable for all of us. So I say thank you, Dennis, and thank you for bringing it forth. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I have to admit that when I first learned this, uh, I, I actually cried. I wept for Terrence. You know, he was suffering, you know, because he, he got a tiger by the tail, and he had to pay the bills, and, of course, some of it was fun. But on the other hand, you know, he had to have some long nights of, uh, you know, the 2 o'clock in the morning. And I think any sentient, conscious, aware human being living through these times does. And I think to deny that is to rob us of what we really need to be doing at this time, which is paying attention and responding appropriately. And I think that's an appropriate response. So um, uh, I, Terrence really did have foresight into these times coming up. And I think we're all in our fashion going to be experiencing our version of it. And none of us know what that's going to look like. And we don't know what to expect or how to be prepared. But I think we can all feel the energy of that coming in. And the dynamics at Esalen, the dynamics at local levels, the dynamics of, of, of the global world. We are watching the, at a microcosm and a macrocosm level so much skewing of power and so much buckling of the structure of our institutions that we have been living by 
that are no longer serving us, that are totally out of balance, that need to collapse and create something new, and none of us have a clue how to go about that or what it's going to look like. I, I agree, and, and my personal take on the thing is, is politics are not the answer. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to say that, that people shouldn't be engaged if you feel that you should uh, be promoting uh, medical marijuana or whatever, but getting emotionally involved in it, in the outcome, in the current, the current system is just broken. And I think those are good rear guard actions, but somehow I think us and our friends and, and neighbors and relatives, we need to start talking about a community, uh, not, not moving to a commune somewhere, but what, what we do with what we've got, where we're at, and how do, we, how do we bring this kind of consciousness into our lives? How can we be more honest about ourselves to ourselves and to our, those that we associate with uh, so that we don't get into the bind that he got himself into? And yet, uh, you know, even though he was in that bind, he, he got these people thinking, like these young kids say. I didn't understand what he was saying, but it got me to thinking about this. So what, are, what has he gotten us to think about? And, and that's where the value of his message is to me. But uh, uh, let's, let's hope that uh, this doesn't turn a lot of people off and turn them against him. But I don't see how it will myself. Uh, hey. Um. As a friend of Terrence that loves him very much and also a business partner that saw his uh, sketchy, say, uh, sketchier side, he wasn't quite sterling. He was a human being and full of all this stuff we're talking about. But the thing that keeps reoccurring to me is Terrence didn't get himself in that position by himself and he didn't get it out of some kind of moral flaw. I was trained as a sociologist, anthropologist, and... We made Terrence who he was. His fans made Terrence into who he was. And when you got a guy trying to raise two kids that has a complicated past and you start making money because people are smiling at what you say in a place like this, it's very hard to derail that momentum. It's very difficult to say no to cash and admiration and adulation. And we have a responsibility for who Terrence was and is. In fact, at this point, it's really up to us to say who he was and is and could be. Um, living around him, I can just testify that there was really unbelievably brutal pressure on the man, and he was incredibly lonely. I just spent a weekend with Daniel Pinchbeck, and basically all we talked about was how lonely it is to be a celebrity intellectual in a quasi-spiritual movement without any rules. It's very, very hard to be out there. So I just keep thinking about mercy for my friend. The guy made all sorts of mistakes. I won't ever tell you the ones he made with me. <laughs> but they're, they're there, and they were scarring, and they disrupted my life at times. But end of the day, I love that guy incredibly, and the, the validation he gave to my own life by his attention literally changed it more than any other experience with any other human. So... Again, just sociologically, let's think of this man as a cultural artifact like gumbo or square dancing or uh, technology. And, you, and it's a little more merciful to understand that he wasn't, in, an, um, he wasn't trying to cheat us in any way. He was trying to juggle and, you know, eventually there were too many plates in the air and things crashed down in various patterns of, uh, of amusing, crazy shit. 
but still, I love that guy, and I, I really deeply appreciate that he just helped bring this conversation back into the public and give us a chance to find each other. And that's really all I have to say about all the other stuff of that. Well, I'm a latecomer into this Terence McKenna craze, and I'm enjoying it totally here. Uh, in fact, sitting from the sideline and looking at what you guys are talking at, uh, um, perhaps no one called it perhaps defect of uh, personality or, or taking the easy road, I don't see it this way at all. I see a person that... Uh, took psychedelic uh, in order to enhance his imagination and get connected, come with new idea, and he came up with wonderful ideas. I mean, the last piece that I heard over there about the, the, the system breaking down may not have been exactly correct in timing, but it is correct in essence because we could see this, this tension bulging and this strip, the tension growing, and, and perhaps snap at some point in our lifetime or in, in this year or next year. So I, I see a person that uh, I, I see in Terence McKenna, a person that researched on himself with psychedelic until he could no longer afford to do it. His body rejected it. And, and that doesn't mean that he couldn't spread the same the word for other people to try to enhance themselves, to try it. So I don't see irony in the fact that he was not doing it himself, but promoting it for other people. I, I hope somehow uh, this circle can actually lead with the essence of, where, of the time we live in. And, and uh, rather than saying we don't know what's going to happen, somehow attempt to try a role in this. Because is, is the polarized system and the haves have, uh, have a hold on everything from the banking system down to energy system and corporate America. And, uh, you know, it's obvious to all of us that gravitate towards places like SLN, but it's not so obvious to the rest of the people. And the question is how to bring this to the masses and perhaps how to find a way of preventing the, the energy from snapping and perhaps find a parallel system along the line to diminish them until they die. Yeah, I agree. That, uh, who else has something they'd like to add here? You know, Terrence, last night it was brought out that uh, Terrence often said the world is created by language. Uh, and, it, you know, a lot of the things he said, I, I had a lot of trouble understanding. You know, I, I couldn't quite grok that until one of his talks he mentioned, uh, I think it was William James, said how when an infant is born, uh, it's laying there in the crib and, and she's seeing a blooming, buzzing confusion, uh, you know, just energy and then all of a sudden there's this whoosh and color and and just she's just amazed and then then the parents come in and say that was a bird a peacock and her world is starting to be built of language and when I was walking through the garden on the way over here today 
I was trying to see things without language, and I couldn't. You know, uh, that's lettuce, that's a tomato, that's a plant. And Terrence was guilty of that, too. Uh, you know, for, for years, I felt I was a psychedelic failure because I never saw those transforming machine elves and the self-dribbling basketballs. And then one time, finally, I was looking at what he called self-dribbling basketballs, and I realized... Oh, I would have said something really different about that, but I could see how he could see that. And I'm not going to tell you what I thought it was because it's just as bad as what he did to me. But, uh, you know, it's in, I get emails from kids saying, I don't see these castles in the sky and stuff like that that he talked about. So uh, we're, we're all, I think, need to kind of be more conscious about our use of language and, and how we pass some of our thoughts on to other people. And like what you were just saying, uh, you know, we're in a, a time of transition, and it's not like it hasn't happened before. I mean, you know, Rome came and went, but it didn't go overnight, and, and people built a new civilization within the shell of the old. And I think that's the kind of thing that, that we're up to, and we can talk about some of those things as well. But uh, uh, to circle back to uh, how, how the, uh, the story that Terrence hasn't taken mushrooms for the last 12 years of his life... Uh, does that change any of your opinions of uh, Terrence McKenna? Oh, it was such a relief to hear that. Because, you know, when I started taking things, I started thinking like, oh, man, three, three grams is enough. And taking more and thinking about the heroic doses and thinking, how am I ever going to get up to six or eight? You know, God, I don't think I ever want to do that. And uh, it's really interesting because my experience has been that if you take a dose where you can stay in both worlds, you can bring back the information. If you take something that blasts you out, you lose that information. So this is really good, and maybe we can help other people who are starting or doing things to realize that it's not about the so-called heroic dose, a massive doses. It's about what works for you to get the information that you can carry with you. So I was very relieved to hear that. <laughs> Thank you. I, I actually was, too. And, and uh, the uh, one of the things, I think over here, that one of the things that... Uh, I think that we, everybody in this room, I don't care if you're how old you are, you're an elder, like it or not, uh, in the psychedelic community. And uh, Aldous Huxley's last book, Island, uh, according to, to Laura, he considered his very most important work. And that was about building ritual, uh, you know, bringing the children up, not as psychedelic heads, but as in the world of consciousness where you break free of the the you know, cultural and consciousness cauldron that your mind is poured into with, with family, religion, state, culture, all that, and to get people to start thinking outside of the cauldron, so to speak. And, and so, again, I think us uh, as a psychedelic community need to be thinking about how do we teach our children? You know, I'm, I, my oldest grandchild's now 13, and the youngest is four, and uh, almost four. And, and, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, in another few years, the oldest one, I'm going to, how, how do I tell her about this? How, how safely do we bring people in so that they don't think they have to do a, a heroic dose, you know? And uh, I don't know exactly what happened to Terrence, but uh, in one of the recent uh, podcasts I put out, 
and I, I wish I'd paid better attention to my own program, but the, he said that he had combined mushrooms with something else, and it might have been Syrian rue, I'm not sure, but something, he, you know, he made it really adamant, never, never, never do this, and so uh, I'm, I'm, uh, if I find that again, I'm really going to pay closer attention, and so that's the kind of information we need to be passing along, is, is don't do 12 grams in silent darkness, and of course I wouldn't do it without music anyhow, I'd never did, bought the silent part. But uh, I think we have some sort of a responsibility uh, to the people coming after us to start building things that were lost, uh, you know, in Eleusis uh, 2,300 years ago. Um, what struck me about uh, what I learned about Terence this morning was how he, his first early experiences started really from that place of wonder and looking at the iridescence and the beauty and the butterfly wings. And... Um, the conversation I feel like to this point and, and even in his life was a lot about the mind um, and exploring the mind through psychedelics. And for me, in my experience with psychedelics, is it, um, it's really been a, a vehicle to get in touch with my heart and my body. And um, as part of this, this time of, of transition and transformation in the world, I really feel like becoming um having a more collective like heart centered awareness and and um having like you said a, a space to accommodate the human soul i really think that's going to contribute to a part of the to the healing that um that these plants and these medicines can offer the world at this time and i feel like that was something he came to kind of later in his life when in the end you know he did say it is all about the love and and to kind of and that it was mentioned that wasn't a place that he was so willing or able to go earlier on, but that that's what he came to. And um, it's just something that, that stirred in me that, that, um, that maybe the next phase of this, this work and this exploration is, is more of a heart-centered and, and even body-centered, maintaining and, and reestablishing connection with our living earth right now um, so that we're making more clear choices about how we move and how we interact with, with this planet as we go forward. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's really uh, interesting how he, he put up some barriers between himself and love. And there was a, a tribute CD put out after he died, and, and I don't know where this particular talk came from, but there's a little soundbite where uh, he was talking about such and such, and all of a sudden he says, well... I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but really the answer is love. And that's the only time I'd heard him mention the word other than the last words of his life. And so he had put up some barriers, and, and we all do. And that's where I see these medicines, if they're used in a sacred uh, ceremony, and et cetera, with some grounding and, and good support, how they can tear down the barriers that we all build up. And that's why the music album, in case you're wondering, that is one I've heard more than any other, is The Wall. <laughs> Tear down the wall. And that's what psychedelics have done for me. And you, I don't have to tear down the wall every weekend. Uh, my wall is down. And so, you know, once, you know, you, once your wall is down, uh, hang up the hammer. How's that? <laughs> a play on Alan Watts' thing. But uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, for, for Terrence, he... He took me from using these medicines as a party animal 
and, and I came to them for pleasure, and I stayed for the spiritual thing. Well, I think I came to Terrence for pleasure, and I stayed for the other things that he was talking about as well. Um, as far as learning anything new about Terrence, I, uh, I, I never assumed that the man wasn't a real man, that he didn't have struggles and that um, he didn't have a hard time uh, following or living by his own message. I think everybody does. Um, I think it's, it's, very, it's a lot easier to conceive of a value and an ideal, and it's a lot more difficult to live that all the time without ever faltering. Everybody falters, right? Um, as far as the, the heroic dose thing or, or anything like this, I, I do agree that it's a, a very individual choice what, what people do, how much they do, what they use it for, etc. I personally, eight dried grams is my standard. This has been the way for years. But I also don't use it in quite the way that I think a lot of other people do. Um, I've become very uninterested in the visual hallucinations of the substance. Mostly because I, the, the things I see just seem um, semi-annoying. It's like uh, aliens trying to sell me addictions or something. They don't seem very beneficial or helpful to me um, uh, or something that I'm interested in. But what I do use it for is it, it uh, mushrooms seem to be kind of this like psychic draino for me. My wall did come down, but then society and day-to-day -day life and various stresses and pressures build that wall back up. And so every once in a while, I take uh, eight, eight or so grams and then it, it flushes out the system and the kind of love river, the flowing of, of, of love and of life and of everything, um, gets back going, and I feel perfect and content and amazing and wonderful, and, and, uh, and I try to share that with, with everybody that I can. But it does. The gunk gets in the system, and that's really how I use uh, this particular substance, and that's part of the reason that I do a high dose. Um, it's, it's always been a very difficult thing for me. Other people trip, and they have very wonderful times. I've always had a very hard time that then leads to a like open space where I feel wonderful. But that very hard time is always there. I'm always extremely anxious coming up. I always uh, encounter things that um, you know either bring me to tears or to my knees or whatever. Um, and then I always intentionally go back because I, I recognize that as being a part of the process of of getting to where I want to go. I guess. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it's it really is a, it's an individual thing, and how we how we um, getting to know ourselves and how it how it affects us and how we choose to use it. So I don't I don't really I wouldn't I, I have no ill will towards him for the advice that he gave because I don't think anybody should take somebody else's advice wholly on itself without evaluating what that advice means to you first. Good point, and it's one size does not fit all is, is really the answer. And, you know, I, uh, a number of years ago, I one time talked to Ann Shulgin and, uh, about uh, bad trips because I had never really had a bad trip. And I said, am I saving up for the mother of all bad trips? And she said, no, a bad trip comes when something comes up and you refuse to face it. 
And as long as you're willing to face it, you know. And so uh, I think that, uh, you know, I've, I've seen people that have taken one gram of mushrooms and had a deeper experience than I did at five. So, you know, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all, and that's one of the things that we have to relearn. I mean, our, our society, our culture, you know, 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago, uh, at least in, in the Greek world, ancient Greek world, through the mysteries of Eleusis, before the state took control of it, uh, people were living in a, a different world, you know, the pre-Homeric world, uh, before, uh, you know, we really got into things that I read a, a, a book recently called Memories and Visions of Paradise, where uh, they went through and, and collected a lot of uh, commonality from various myths. And they were talking about the, the pre-Homeric, the, the mystical, the paradise mindset. And uh, kind of reminded me of, of Terence's concept of the stoned ape. Because they said that throughout all of these, uh, gleaning these facts from the myths, that the people that lived in this state... Uh, there was an onset with a dazzling light that flooded the brain, overwhelming ecstasy, intellectual illumination impossible to describe, fear of death vanishes, transcendental love, uh, a reappreciation of nature and a sense of mission and a change of personality, psychic gifts. I mean, that all sounds like the description of, of a psychedelic experience. So uh, I think one of the things that, that was kind of fun to do is to uh, see what kind of a wild, weird idea uh, for me that I could come up with that was as crazy as some of Terence's ideas. So I'm going to I'm going to turn his stoned ape idea on on its head, because uh, as you know, in our we 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 make DMT in our bodies, and uh, and John thankfully pointed out that it's not his, it's not medically proven. It's the pineal gland that does it. You know they don't really know where it's coming from. I was passing that bad information around too. But uh, it is in our bodies. And so my, my upside-down Terrence is that before the apes started eating the mushrooms, there was a steady trickle of DMT, and they were living in paradise in this sort of uh, mystical state. And then they came down out of, the jungle, out of the trees, and they found the mushrooms. And just like before we invented shoes, we had pads on our feet that we didn't, you know, really thick feet. Now we... we you know, can't walk on gravel very well because uh, the shoes have replaced it. Maybe the mushrooms were so easy to do that the DMT trickle stopped, and that's why we don't have, uh, we don't know what the use of it is in our body yet. You know, they're talking about maybe at birth and death, but uh, so there's my opposite stone date. Maybe he got it wrong. Maybe it was the mushrooms that took us out of paradise <laughs> because we had an easy way to trip instead of uh, the on the natch thing. You know, it's a cockamamie idea, but. Uh, that's one of the beauties, I think, of Terrence McKenna is that he was able to allow us to get until you get to a, a level where you can't cross the line. But he allowed us to uh, explore ideas that aren't you know, taught in schools. So uh, just my two cents on it. Uh, there we go. You know, for me, some of the concepts that uh, that he brought to mind, uh, like Gaia and um, you know the collective, and and thinking about the this whole idea, the stone ape concept, it, it really makes me wonder if there really is something to this eschaton. Um, you know, you know, we were in the desert uh, over the weekend in in a group of like-minded people, and and 
we had just finished watching uh, Terrence's riff on DMT. And yet the conversation afterward, everybody, uh, half of the room was talking about the changes that are happening in our world, you know, and what's going on with, uh, you know, the Arab Spring and, you know, the Occupy movement and and everything else. And then it it just kind of gets me thinking, well, you know, the human species, maybe we really are just going through a step in evolution. Maybe the eschaton is really something that, that Terrence felt inside as his part for all of us to make that next step, to evolve. You know, and if that's the case, you know, he's, you know, jumped right up to the plate and he hit the ball. He did his part, you know, and, and, and for that, I thank him. You know, he really did his part. And that, but that also means that by him doing his part enables all of us to be here and we all have a part to play. And that's it. I agree. I agree. And, and you know, and, and eschaton can be different things to different people. Uh, you know, that, that uh, there are, uh, like I, the uh, talk by Evan Moglin I, I recently podcast, where he talked about the fact that, in his opinion, the World Wide Web is the most significant invention of technology since writing. And so, and if you think about it, you know, I, I can... You know, Bruce and I have been involved in that for many, many years, and and the speed with which things have changed. The it it's look at the world we're in right now. That four billion people in this planet have connections to the internet right now. I, I mean, that boggles the mind. And in in Bangalore, where they you know slum, it's either twenty two or twenty four hundred people, one toilet, seventeen hundred children. And 914 cell phones. One toilet and 914 cell phones. Those people are connected to all of the world's information that's being put up there. Now, granted, it's a mess out there. But think about the fact that in, in another 20 years or so, you will be able to contact by text or whatever every human being on the planet. We will literally be wired together Uh that's changing things, and that's why why all of these these uh, you know solidified minds in inside the Beltway in Washington have no clue what's going on. And and the, you know the the people that talk about the Occupy movement should get involved with the Democratic Party and elect somebody. That's they don't understand what's going on with the movement. Isn't it wonderful that there is no one in charge? Yeah, that's that was one of Terrence's uh, things that uh, he said. If you're afraid about uh, who's in charge or worrying about the uh, Illuminati, or he said it's really more frightening because nobody's in charge. <laughs> uh, that that brings up something interesting. I've been thinking about Doug Rushkoff. Is that his name? Do you do you know who that is? Program or be programmed. He brings up a very interesting issue that I would not otherwise have thought about because I agree that technology is really going to be a big part of this evolution that we're undergoing. But he says if we allow the status quo to program our technology, we will simply be programmed in that way. So what we need to do is elect to learn how to program so that we can program these technologies in accordance with 
the way we want them programmed, not how we want to be programmed. Exactly. And, and you know, that's one of the things Moglin pointed out where they, in, in Bangalore, in this, this slum, what, how it all started is he's got a computer center there now. But what happened, he said these uh, young communist kids working in a, in a corporation were going through their trash bins and pulling out all the computers that were thrown away and fixed them and put them in a computer center in the middle of this slum. And nobody cared about learning how to use the office suite or anything like that to get a job in a cubicle. They used it to create art and music. And then they hacked into it, and they learned how to... to that's one of his objections to the, to the Mac, because you can't hack it. And he said that, that the innovation, you can either have it coming from a corporation that's in control, or you can have a hackable machine where the kids, the, you know, the 12 years, our little 4-year-old granddaughter is about ready to start hacking into our computer. I mean, she is just geeky. And uh, so it's, it's taking the control away from whoever is, is uh, trying to do it. And, of course, the people in control are trying to stay in control. You know, that's the way it's been forever. Uh, you go back to the, the uh, ancient days when it was the temple. Everything was around the temple, and the, the priest and the king were essentially the same. But these temple complexes had thousands of people, and they, that's where their food came from. So you, you start controlling the consciousness and the food supply, and that's one of the things I think we, all of us, here in, in the planet today need to start getting our food supply independent of money. You know, and, and in Greece, where the people are starting to start their family gardens outside of the town and all, uh, in San Diego, downtown San Diego, in the projects, the uh, kids are learning how to make hanging gardens, wall gardens hanging up and down the uh, sides of the buildings. So uh, getting back in touch with, with nature and getting control of things away from the power elite, I think, is is part of what we're up to. And we only do that on an individual basis. We don't go picket the congressman to do it. We, we start learning how to uh, plant our own food, which is, is significantly harder than I ever imagined until I saw Mary C. building her garden and I don't volunteer to help her. And <laughs> I feel guilty about it, but it's, it's a huge amount of work, you know, and it's something that's worth learning. Uh, yes, um, I, I uh, have uh, experienced uh, a lot of creativity and, and immense change from psychedelics. And uh, I've also enjoyed McKenna's workshops, about half a dozen of them. That said, um, I have a few other comments. Um, one about the stoned ape. I think um, one huge question is uh, when the, the, the several, do several dozen of us uh, become stoned, um, do we each experience our own trip? Or do we experience some something out there? And uh, that's a big question that, um, that McKenna uh, obviously answered and then backtracked. Uh, there isn't anything out there, or, or there's not as much out there, or the exact things I said was were out there. Um, as a, as a psychedelic pioneer and as a courageous exponent of psychedelics and a researcher uh, in, in his tabulation of ethnobotanicals, he was unsurpassed. On the other hand, as an intellectual, um, somebody mentioned he hitting balls out of the park. I actually think he sliced the golf ball into the rough. Uh, be, basically because, in my opinion... 
he made a cardinal error um, that the existentialists don't make. Uh, he made the cardinal error of reifying language, thinking language is something, is something. Uh, when that baby who, who sees the, um, the flower sees a flower, but, he, but the baby sees the flower, the baby does not see the symbol and the, the language element. I think language leads us into very tenuous ground, and I think poor Terence uh, traversed a lot of that ground running along the language path, which essentially is reverting back to being a Cartesian, a, a dualist. Uh, uh, there's, um, there's the um, uh, spirit, and then, then there's material, and uh, dual perceptions of, of reality are not very much in vogue in philosophy. Uh, they, they are, and, and I think he was a, a sort of a, he went with the patriarchal system in, as far as being a, a dualist, a Cartesian, and, and reifying language. And therefore, I think he sliced a lot of balls into the rough. And he sliced so many into the rough, I think he realized his score was uh, pitiful. Uh, so that's 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 uh, my major my major thoughts for the moment. Uh, I I had no problems with um, his body wearing out with too many psychedelics, uh, and I I have I had even had no problems with his being a bit of a huckster. Uh, I I kind of admired P.T. Barnum for a while. Anyway, that's that, that's my a few of my thoughts that aren't aren't entirely um, uh, uh, positive, I would say, uh, since I think in, in any, any gathering that runs around doing exactly just positive, I don't want to be a party to a, a group that, um, where everybody thinks the same and everybody thinks positively, or the reverse. Anyway, that's and I, I can't speak for Terrence, obviously, but I suspect if he was here today, he would be really pleased that people are are taking uh, a, a close look at things. And, you know, he didn't take himself seriously. You know, uh, he did for a while, maybe. But for the most part, uh, he even told Bruce, uh, what was that about uh, the time we have changed? Yeah. Now, the, when it came to, to 2012, I said, Terrence. Are you serious about this thing? You know, here you are, you know, you're telling the UFO believers, you know, you must have this, be subject to the same rules of evidence as everyone else, you know, and he's criticizing them because they make an assumption and then pile another assumption on top of that, another one, and say, and this all means that each assumption is less probable. I say, Terrence, you know, this is the same kind of piling on, you know, and he kind of looked at me and he said, well, and I said something like, we both had the thought, hmm, this could become a kind of new age Y2K. And I said, or he said to me, I hope people don't take this too literally. So, so and I don't think many people are anymore because Hollywood has pretty well milked the uh, <laughs> 2012 meme. But on the other hand, I think all of us individually can make 2012 a pretty pivotal year if we uh, uh, start 
changing the way we're thinking about things, the way we're living and things that we're doing. And I think that's part of what this weekend is for. So I think what we can do now is uh, we're going to pick up on this. Uh, we've got a few other uh, directions to poke things in here this afternoon to uh, go on. One of the things I, I want to get to later today is to talk a little bit about myth, uh, creating new myths that, you know, if a, a people doesn't don't have a myth, they have an ideology. And... Uh, uh, those don't last nearly as long as the myths. But, you know, the myths that we're living with are, are way out of date. You know, for example, uh, the Christian myth about the uh, bodily assumption of, of Christ's body into wherever, uh, if he left uh, 2,000 years ago at the speed of light, he still wouldn't be out of this galaxy. So, you know, we have to take some reality check in here and maybe create some new myths. And so that's something I'd like to be thinking about is uh, uh, what do we leave behind when we go? That uh, recently I heard a TED talk, uh, a young woman archaeologist who uh, grew up in Maine uh, searching for sand dollars. And she learned that you just look at the pattern and finally, because they're hard to find if you've ever searched for sand dollars. Well, now she's become an archaeologist that uses uh, satellite imaging and infrared and has, uh, I guess maybe several years ago now, uh, discovered the uh, city that was the uh, capital of the Middle Kingdom of Egypt uh, and was a major force in Egypt for 400 years, and they discovered it under the sand. It's only just now they're starting to even look for it. So what's, what's left? Where are our pyramids? Where are our cave paintings? And as Ter Terence once pointed out, you know, it's, it's not that big a mystery of how they built the pyramids. The real mystery is how did we lose all that knowledge? So what, what is, is it that we can create in the form of a myth to help our descendants uh, who, if you happen to believe in reincarnation, maybe will even be us. You know, so what do we leave behind for ourselves to come back and pick up on? So those are some of the questions that I think we should kick around this afternoon. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So where are our cave paintings, huh? What are the uh, myths that uh, we should be teaching our children and grandchildren so that what little we've learned about the world so far isn't once again lost? Maybe uh, we should be looking for some cave walls to paint our stories on, huh? <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe there's a better way to keep our myths alive, and uh, in the weeks ahead, I plan on playing some more of this uh, weekend conversation at Esalen and uh, see what ideas it may spawn in your own mind. But talking about generating new ideas uh, reminds me that there's going to be a whole bunch of new ideas that come to life at Burning Man this year. And while there will be several lectures on the playa this year, from my point of view, uh, you won't find a better place to fill your intellectual appetite on the playa than at the Palenque Norte lectures, which are going to be hosted by Camp Above the Limit. And uh, you'll find them located at 915 and B. So if you're going to the burn this year, be sure to write that down, because once you arrive on the playa, as I remember, uh, sometimes things kind of slip through the cracks uh, if you haven't planned ahead. So just remember this, camp above the limit at 915 and B. Bravo. And as you know, uh, the street names change each year, uh, depending on what the theme is, but uh, they're always uh, alphabetical from the inside Esplanade ring. Uh, so I guess that would be like the uh, second street back from the, from the center ring. 
And uh, for what it's worth, I just spent about, uh, I guess, five or ten minutes searching through the official Burning Man site for uh, this year's map so that I could give you the actual name of B Street. But uh, they've either kept it a secret or hidden the link so deep in their site that an old guy like me can't find it. So uh, just remember B as in Bravo and 915, and you'll get there with no problem. Now, as for the lectures themselves, uh, the Planque Norte lectures themselves, I first of all want to thank Chris Pezza for uh, coordinating this massive speaker schedule. Uh, without his efforts, there might not even be any Planque Norte lectures on the playa this year. As you uh, may remember, originally uh, Bruce Damer and myself and a core group of other burners had planned a rather large theme camp in which to host these lectures. But then with the ticket lottery fiasco, uh, well, our camp more or less just fell apart after only uh, one or two of the key people got tickets. And uh, by the time the Burning Man organization got their act back together and uh, reallocated some tickets, uh, I'd completely lost my enthusiasm for the event, as uh, did many of our key people. So our camp never really came together. However, uh, Bruce pressed on, and uh, thanks to an introduction made by Alicia Danforth, he linked up with a group that is now calling itself Camp Above the Limit, who uh, in the past has also hosted speakers in their other incarnations. And the person who did much of the work, uh, both then and now, uh, is Chris Pezza. Uh, and he hooked up with Bruce to uh, work out a schedule for a combined lecture series this year under the Plinque Norte banner. Then uh, Bruce got called away for business reasons, and Chris had to pick up the slack and uh, more or less put this entire speaker schedule together on his own. Uh, having done that myself for several years, uh, I know what a huge and time-consuming job that is. Uh, you know, until you've had to deal with dozens of speakers trying to adjust their uh, individual time and day requirements on the playa, it's like, like that uh, proverbial uh, herding cats metaphor. You know, it's uh, not very easy. Yet uh, Chris has come up with a schedule for the talks that, uh, from my point of view, is far and away the most exciting group of speakers ever to appear on the playa. And you can read the uh, days and times of the talk on the webpage that I linked to in the program notes for this podcast, uh, which, of course, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us, or uh, which you can find on Facebook, on the Planque Norte group page, as well as uh, on some other sites that I've linked to. So, if you're going to be at the burn this year, be sure to make a note of the talks that you most definitely plan on attending. Uh, there are still some additional talks that will be added to the schedule in the next few weeks, but here's the schedule as it appears today. On Tuesday, August 28th, at 11.45, will be an opening ritual. Uh, from 1 to 2 is Amanda Sage, and I don't have the topic uh, that she's speaking on yet. And then from 2 to 3 will be a music and tea break. And uh, these are going to occur during uh, each day's talks, these uh, music and tea breaks, uh, which I think are just a fantastic idea, uh, particularly for those who will be attending more than one talk. You know, I didn't do anything like that before, but I sure wish I had because uh, it can really enhance the uh, relaxed atmosphere that we try to get to on the playa. Anyhow, on uh, that same Tuesday, the 28th, from 4 to 5 p.m., Ash Ritter will be speaking about ceremonial plant medicine for community building. Uh, from 6 to 7 p.m., Charles Shaw, The War on Consciousness and Psychedelics. 
7 to 8 p.m., Ken Adams, who is the producer of the Terrence McKenna Experience, the new movie that's uh, uh, going to be shown at 8 p.m. at the same venue. Uh, Ken's the producer, and he'll be speaking for an hour about uh, the, you know, the source of the material and about Terrence and his relationship with Terrence. And then from 8 to 10 will be a screening of the movie. Now, on Wednesday, August 29th, from noon to one, Brian Wallace will be talking about cacao and neurobiology. And then from one to two, Dr. Natalie, N.D., will be speaking about entheogens and plant medicines. Then uh, at three o'clock, we'll be back with Daniel Pinchbeck, who I think everybody knows. Followed from four to five p.m. by John Allen and Tango Parrish Schneider, who will be speaking about visions and biospheres. And uh, John and Tango are also friends of mine, and they're uh, going to be really interesting speakers. I think you'll get a lot out of them. Then from uh, 6 to 7 is our friend John Gilmore, who will present an open discussion. And uh, you can hear John in an earlier podcast here, as uh, well as the 7 to 8 p.m. speaker, who is Rick Doblin, uh, the founder of MAPS. Then on Thursday, August 30th, uh, from noon to 1, will be Troy Dayton. Uh, I don't have the title of his talk yet. From 1 to 2 is going to be Xavier Phoenix, who's going to be talking about psychedelic lifestyle design. From 3 to 4, James Orock, The Importance of the Second Psychedelic Revolution. From 4 to 5 p.m. is Robert Forte, uh, and you've heard uh, Robert here in the salon on several occasions as well. And then from 6 to 7, it will be Bruce Damer, who is going to be speaking about manifesting the golden universe. Uh, from 7 to 8, there's going to be a panel discussion under the uh, topic, Have Psychedelics Helped to Build a Better Lives and Stronger Communities, or Have They Had More of the Opposite Effect? And uh, this will feature Bruce Damer and uh, Thomas Manning and uh, several others. And then from 8 to 9.30 p.m. is the one and only Paul Stamets, who uh, you've heard on TED Talks. Uh, I've been to several workshops with Paul and some conferences he's produced, and you just don't want to miss that one for sure. Uh, Friday, August 31st at uh, noon to 1 is Hamilton Souther, who is speaking about healing through sound and ayahuasca. And then from 1 to 2 is Annie Oak, and she's going to be talking about developing a community tea house model. And uh, of all the talks, that's the one I'm most looking forward to hearing myself, because I think we really should be looking into uh, developing more community in our local areas. And then from 2 to 3 p.m., Alex and Allison Gray will be speaking about psychedelic family business. As I said, uh, there's still some additional speakers who will be added to this schedule, so be sure to take a last look at our online schedule before you head out to the playa in August. Oh, uh, and did I mention that our faithful sound technician, Tom Riddell, will also be there with his recording equipment. And uh, barring any unfortunate mishaps, uh, such, <laughs> such as the ones that plagued me almost every time I try to make recordings at Burning Man, but barring those unfortunate happenings, uh, Tom will be sending me recordings of all of these talks so that you and I can listen to them here in the salon this fall. I can uh, hardly wait. But for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. It is the impossible become possible, and yet remaining impossible.